Hello, everybody. Welcome to the mailbag. That's right. It's myself, Marcus Speller, and Andy Brassel in your ears. Hi, Andy. Yay. Hello. That was a bit smashy and nicey, but we'll continue nonetheless. Andy, how the dickens are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty good, Marcus, and yourself? Very, very sexy. Andy, there are some questions here that you need to answer. The good people of the Football Ramble Discord want your opinions on an array of topics. Uh, topics, just like Daniel Facker. Uh, and we're going to begin with this one from Aaron, who says this. Has there ever been a turnaround following a manager change as big as what Bayern have seen with Hansi Flick from seventh in the table and looking really average with players like Muller being ready to walk under Kovac to winning a treble and looking like the best team in Europe comfortably. Not sure Liverpool would agree with that, Aaron, but I take the point. All in the space of 10 months, not even a full season due to forced stop due to the pandemic. Does anything else even come close? I'm not well, sure I would like to jump in, Andy. Go on. Roy Keane taking over Sunderland in the doldrums yeah. and then straight to promotion. Yeah, that's that's true. Although I think you can say that they were in a false position and that it was when Niall Quinn removed himself as manager, that was only, what, four or five games into the season? So Bayern so, weren't in a false position when they were seventh, Andy? Um, well, according to Niko Kovac, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I think that's the interesting thing because um, what makes it so remarkable, I think, is that the messaging was so different. And the, the Nile Quinn situation is is a really interesting one, but it's a very different one because it's him removing himself. So yeah. you know, there's there's a there's a joined upness in the in the decision. Whereas with Kovac, um, he said, "Well, the reason we're not um, pressing, and you know, this was really the end for him when they lost to Liverpool in such a humbling way in the Champions League." The um, the season before in the what March and um, it was kind of a, a death by a thousand cuts from from that point yeah, and uh, you know he said quite publicly Kovac well we can't play an aggressive pressing game with these players hmm. now the players were annoyed by that they weren't annoyed enough to disprove him obviously yeah. Uh, yeah. that only really happened when Hansi Flick took charge um, and I think you have to give a lot of credit to Bayern here because mm-hmm. um, Hansi Flick was their break glass in case of emergency plan. Yeah. In the, um, it wasn't Kovac who appointed him as his assistant. It was the club who appointed Hansi Flick as, as his assistant. And they knew that they had a bit of cover. They had a bit of breathing space if things got too bad and they had to get rid of Kovac because, like I said, they were not convinced by him the players weren't convinced by him but they didn't really think there was a better solution out there at the, at the, the, the time and mm-hmm. no one could have known not even Bayern just how good Hansi Flick would would be where you have mm-hmm. to give Bayern the credit is for putting him in charge in the first place uh, sorry for bringing him to the club in the first place and then on a very small um, sample size saying okay we're going to permanently go with Hansi Flick from from this point, but it just shows what an incredible impression he made in mm-hmm. in such a short time. I mean, if you go to Hansi Flick's first league game, bear in mind in the last league game, they'd been absolutely thumped at Eintracht Frankfurt five one, and this is the point where the club think, right, well, we can't deal with Kovac 
being the being the coach anymore. We've got, we've got to move on. And Bayern were at such a low point for him to pick them up. And next league game, they beat Dortmund, who admittedly weren't in great nick then because they were very poor before Christmas, and that finished mm. off their chances of a, a, yeah. a genuine title challenge. Um, but it's not just that they beat them four 0 It was the style and the aggression with which they did it. Um, I think you can understand, A, a bit of a new manager bump, and B, the players being inspired by playing the Classica, but that he was able to keep that level of performance and even take it up from there after that, I think is is, is something that was remarkable. I mean, I think the content is so important as well, not just the results, because... We've known that you know Bayern are on this incredible run of, of of successive league titles, and they won titles under Kovac, under Carlo Ancelotti, who, again, after they went out of the Champions League to Real Madrid in his first season in charge, that was a a blow that he never really recovered from, and it was something that really blindsided everyone at the the, the club because I think they thought things were bobbing along quite nicely to that point. But even when they won those titles, um, the manner wasn't impressive at all. That's why this season is so different. It's the, the results and the results to finish the season with the 29 wins and draw in the last 30 games, um, they are the logical result of the performances. Whereas you, you can't say that, I don't think, in, in recent Bayern seasons. They've been able, with the quality of players they've got, to summon these mini surges to, to, to get them over the line. Um, but, you know, you kind of felt that it's been slowly going backwards since Pep Guardiola left the club. Whereas now, they've taken several leaps forward and several leaps forward with a young team that you feel can get better and better and better. But Kovac's tactics have been important. And I think you can see the redeployment of Alfonso Davies, um, David Alaba, Joshua Kimmich. They're all important things. But, you know, you tend to think of coaches, and I might have said this on the main ramble, you, you, you tend to think of coaches as either great motivators or great tacticians. He's actually been both. I think the way he's connected with the players and coaching any club of that sort of size with that amount of high-profile players is an absolute minefield. It's, it's something that's really, really tough to to do. And to have a coach who's come in from being assistant, whoever he was appointed by, that, that is mm-hmm. the fact of the matter. He, he, was, he was the assistant and, and knocked up to number one. Have that level of authority and the light touch to connect with those players and make them feel good is hugely impressive. And that's why they've wanted to to, to lock him up for the, the medium to long term. To lock him up, Andy. But it's true, though, if you think about it, those a lot of those players, or, or certainly some of them, have played under Guardiola, Ancelotti, some of the, mm. the biggest names in football. For a guy to come in who's the assistant, again, it's just human nature for them to go, you yeah, know, who the hell's this? <laughs> yeah, with, with, no, with no top job experience yeah. to, to speak of. What he did have, of course is the connection with being with Germany when they won with the, the World Cup in 2014. Okay, yeah, okay. And he, yes. he already got on well with a lot of those mm. players. But but still, to extrapolate from a good relationship as an assistant to the number one at one of the world's leading clubs who mm. brings you to playing the best football that you've played in 
four years. I mean, that's pretty astonishing. That is some yeah. step up. I find it incredible. This is another treble we've seen. It, like, it's remarkable that 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 achievement sort of been lost uh, in in this kind of pandemic and, and so on and so forth. That just what an incredible season it's been for Bayern. I understand why it's been lost, but it is a treble, and they are rare things. Mm. Even though we've seen a few of them in the last ten years, but previously they used to average from the nineteen sixties in Europe. It was once a decade. Then. Um, well, depending where you draw the line, if the season starts or ends in in a certain decade, but in in the two thousand and tens or the or the teens or whatever, we saw uh, we saw a few. But I suppose now in twenty twenty, it's the first treble of the uh, of the twenties, if you like the twenty twenties. Uh, but it's it's they've had an amazing season. Yeah, they they they, they really have, and um, like I said, it is that sense that it could actually get better. I mean, that's amazing because they have been terrifying, particularly on the. On, on, on the home straight, you know, you feel there's things they could do a little bit better, but, you know, you feel they've got the group together already. And Leroy Sané is just going to add to that as well, um, which is which is pretty fantastic. But you do feel that they've got the the, the base to, to get themselves into being not just, you know, serial Bundesliga winners again, but a team that are the team to beat in mm-hmm. the, the Champions League going forward. I mean, I'd be really interested to see how they'll do that. And I mean, it's hard to judge this season's Champions League in isolation because it is such an unusual situation and it is such um, an unusual format. But with that having having been said, the way the format changed halfway through the season and yet they've basically kept their performance consistent as if there was no gap... I think is really, really interesting. And I think if you look back to Real Madrid's uh, three wins in a row under Zinedine Zidane, there's, you know, a lot of cup football type luck in that. And there are a lot of dicing with danger moments. Bayern could be more dominant than that. And like I said, I think especially with a cup competition, you know, you've got to look at the content rather than just the results. Of course, the results are important to get over the line and get into the next round and win the trophy and all that sort of stuff. But... I think Bayern can produce an era. If they could replicate that three in a row, for example, which of course the club did back in the 70s when it was a European Cup, you would back them to do it with more style than Zidane's Real Madrid, without a doubt, wouldn't you? You would. Although I still think Liverpool are perhaps the best team in Europe. But there we are, Andy. Well, we're going to find out next season, aren't we? (laughs) I mean, it, it it could be an amazing Champions League, couldn't it? The smile on the face of Manuel Neuer says it all. And for the sixth time, Bayern Munich are European champions. Uh, Andy, we move on to a question from Dan2008, who says, Question for the pod. Thank you, Dan. You've come to the right place. Uh, Valencia appear to be in trouble having to sell some of their best players. Just how bad are things for them? And are there any other top clubs that are suffering badly in the post-lockdown world? Now, some people say, well, you know, this has been an ongoing thing. Well, it has, but hence the question. We appreciate that, Dan. And we've spoken about Valencia before, but it is an evolving and ongoing situation there, Andy Brassel. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, Valencia, no strangers to financially bottoming out, of course. Um, Mm. You know, it's it's something 
we've, we've kind of thought about, or I've rethought about, with uh, the return of Ronald Koeman to um, Spanish club management with with Barcelona. Um, I say that. I, I do wonder if, if if we're wise talking about that because by the time this show comes out, he might be looking for another job or asking the, <laughs> the, the, the Netherlands to take him back by the time yeah. you guys actually actually hear this, Ramblers. But, um, you know, they, they were in an absolute state then, Valencia, um, post-Rafa Benitez. And obviously they got into huge trouble um, defaulting on a, a huge loan from one of Spanish, Spain's major banks, um, getting to a point where um, they'd started to build their new stadium but couldn't sell the Mestalla and couldn't sell the, 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 the ground that it was on and so couldn't continue, didn't have the money to continue with that. And, you know, the new Mestalla, which has been their, their, their planned new stadium for a really long time, um, the, 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 the facade of it and the foundations of it have been sitting there for a decade now is and it is really a symbol of how Valencia had gone sideways now when Peter Lim took over the club um a he saved them I don't think you can get away from that and b he, he brought in Gary Neville <laughs> yeah, he did. that's a little bit further down the line that's the second part of it <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but he also made it a key tenor of what he was going to do that they would um, complete the stadium for Valencia's centenary um, mm-hmm. th- th- it's not happened and I-, I think really the concern is th- the most the most recent um, going south of, of Valencia has been in-, in the wake of them firing Marcelino and mm-hmm. uh, Marcelino was a, a coach who um, did a really great job there was enormously popular with the players who got them into the Champions League in a very unpromising situation, who'd got them to Copa del Rey. And, you know, we talk about how difficult it is to win leagues, big European leagues these days. It's difficult to win cups, actually, in in, in most European countries because up until recently, you know, you look at the, the, the fact that, you know, Juventus had won um, four in a row before last season, um, Barcelona the same, um, uh, Paris Saint-Germain before they, they they got beaten in the final by Rennes of, of last season's edition of, of, of 18-19. And Marcelino got them, got Valencia to beat Barcelona in the final, which is, mm-hmm. is, is, is pretty amazing. And it, it, to, to me, it's, to me, it's remarkable because um, when the, when Valencia did this, um, announced that they'd agreed the deal with uh, to, with Leeds to sell Rodrigo, for example. They said, yeah. um, I want to thank Rodrigo for all the work he's done over the last six years, and he won a cup. And um, I thought, that's a really curious way of putting it, because basically the club made Marcelino feel like shit for the fact that he pursued the cup to its conclusion. Like the feeling within some of the board at Valencia was, well, by pursuing the cup, you um, took a risk and maybe, you know, put a risk, our chances of getting in the top four, not well done on beating the best team in Spain in the Copa final <laughs> and well done on finishing in the top four. It's like, well, by trying to chase the cup, which you've successfully done, you put 
our chances of reaching the top four in jeopardy, which you also successfully did. Yeah, but um, he can't you know, win, can he? No, no congratulations on it. And 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 soon after that, they got rid of him. Um, it was it was quite a tearful press conference that he gave after that because I think he was profoundly hurt by yeah, what happened. And the, 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 the way they got in um, Albert Filares, who's already in the staff, it just felt like um, a, a sticking plaster for a broken leg, really. Uh, mm. the, 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 the fact that it, it, what, it, what it kind of conveyed was a, a sense of neglect, really. So um, I, th- I think the way Valencia have gone since has um, clearly gone from bad to worse. I, I think a lot of clubs out there, going back to the original question, will say when they're making cutbacks, oh, well, in a post-COVID world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. With Valencia, the point that they've reached at the moment, and just to reiterate, um, they got rid of uh, two of their midfield players, uh, Francis Coquelin and Danny Parejo, for next to nothing, combined fee of $8 million up front, to Villarreal, just down the road, who, make no mistake, they will both be absolutely brilliant with. <laughs> and they didn't give uh, Parejo a, a thanks or a, a farewell press conference. He had to do his farewell press conference again, tearfully, on uh, Zoom from his front room. Um, so this is a club that at the moment, or, or certainly a board at the moment, have really no respect for people who've, who've put a lot into the club. Um, you know, personality differences happen at every club, but um, to show like no acknowledgement, no recognition for people who've helped you, it, it just doesn't reflect well on the club. And of course, um, Peter Lim's daughter, Kim, uh, came out um, with that thing on her personal Instagram a couple of months back um, saying what the fans don't realise is, um, uh, what the fans don't seem to understand is it's our club and we can do what they want with it. But we can do what we want with it. So we don't really care what you think. In those words, um, which is just absolutely appalling. So in two successive summers, um, the board have done something that's really, really um, just chipped away at morale inside and outside the club. So for like anyone to say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's a, you know everyone's cutting back at the moment that's not what's happening at valencia this has been brewing for a really long time now i think on one hand you can acknowledge that peter lim helped um valencia out of quite an invidious position before and yet has not run the club absolutely perfectly in the in, in the meantime far from it and i think when you look at the fact that what's made it worse is a couple of times they've qualify for the Champions League. So you know the potential's there to to do even better. But there's just not really been the will either to follow it through or to take advice, I think, from people who have the best interests of the club at heart. I think they've created divisions between um, themselves, the board, and, and, and the fans where there was really no need to. I think one of the most frustrating things for Valencia fans must be the fact that if you look at Atletico Madrid, if you look at Atletico Madrid when um, Diego Simeone took over um, a couple of days before Christmas in 2011, um, they are starting from a further point back than Valencia. Now, Valencia are in a better position 
at that point. And you think the two clubs have very similar sizes, um, very similar stadiums in terms of um, age, development, infrastructure, all that sort of stuff at that point, um, and very similar financial profiles. And Atletico Madrid have turned themselves by finishing their new stadium, which Valencia never got to, um, by obviously having an exceptional coach as, as, as well, um, with the same sort of um, the, the same sort of re- resources, they've got themselves into a position where you know everyone around the world who's a fan of football now talks about Atletico Madrid, whether, whether they like the way they play or not. And they've been into Champions League finals and won a championship from the noses, from in front of the noses of modern day um, Barcelona and Real Madrid. Yeah, they they are. They're part of the furniture. And if you're a Valencia fan, that must be so frustrating. There's no reason Valencia couldn't have done what they've done with a little bit of love and care. They did 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. But I I think. But to keep it going, though. Yeah, or, one, or, or to build on that, keep, I suppose. One to keep it going because they've been incredibly yeah. consistent in qualifying for the Champions League. And they yeah. have got to that point where they've made it to the next level, certainly to the cusp of the European elite by yeah. building the new stadium, by what they're able to spend on, on players. And Valencia were never at that point. Also, I think you have to look at it where when Valencia really thrived and won two leagues in three seasons, two leagues in three seasons under, under Rafael Benitez. Um, Barcelona were in a massive dip at the time. Um, yeah. Real Madrid were largely concentrated on the on the European Cup, and certainly a bit volatile and and unstable. Certainly more volatile and unstable compared to today, for example. Even if they are going undergoing a period of, of, of reconstruction, so you know, Atletico have done it in a like less forgiving environment than. Mm-hmm. Than, than what Valencia did. So, I mean, I mean it's, it's very sad because I, I know everyone talks about the demanding Valencia fans or whatever. I think all the Valencia fans are demanding at the moment is to be treated with a little bit of respect by, by a club that they give so much to. Yeah. Treat everybody with respect, Andy, I find. That is the best way to be. Well, th- that's the way you treat me and it's always greatly appreciated. Mm-hmm. Right then, Andy, I'm going to treat you with enormous amount of contempt uh, if you don't answer this question correctly. Uh, from Stu Bear, who says, with the success of Ashley Young and Chris Smalling in Serie A this season, which English players over the age of 30 do you think would succeed elsewhere in Europe? Personally, I think Jamie Vardy in Serie A would be entertaining. And he spelled entertaining with a capital E there. So Stu Bear means business, although Vardy has just signed an extension to his contract at Leicester City, Stu Bear. So it's unlikely you will get your wish. This is a hypothetical question, isn't it, from Stu Bear, rather than I I think this will happen. There's no prognostic element to it, is it? What are you saying? Who do you think would succeed elsewhere in Europe or do well? Uh, So so of course, in one sense, it's hypothetical, but also it could be... um, you know, but it's grounded in a, in in the, the the impossibility, and it's always best to be grounded in possibility. Yes, well, I think Jamie Vardy is a great shout, and Jamie Vardy would do well in a lot of different European leagues. I think mm-hmm. um, he's still got loads of pace. I think he would thrive in the Bundesliga. Um, I think he would score goals in La Liga as well. I think he'd do great anywhere. I mean, the fact that he's a late developer, the fact that he's so tactically smart as well and that he's guarded so much of his his pace i think 
all of those things, I, I, I would I would love to see him have a go elsewhere. I think it would be really interesting. And I always think wherever a player is, this doesn't just go for players um, leaving the Premier League, but it's just good to see players in different contexts, isn't it? It's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it, it's mm-hmm. fun. Um, I think that the ones that spring to mind for, for me immediately when we're talking of um, 30s and over... Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with a Danny. I'm gonna go with Danny Rose. I yeah. feel that he's a player with loads of ability, who has done very well out of his career, but mm. has, has has gone a bit sideways over the, yeah. the last couple of years. And with every respect for Newcastle United, a club that I have a lot of time for, mm-hmm. he should be playing at a more aspirational club than that, in my opinion, yeah. and. That is something that I would, I would really, really like to see um, going where, forward. Andy, where, where are you thinking? Well, a league they, or a particular team? I, th- I think I think Serie A would be be good for him. I think uh, France would be good for him. Um, can I, I, th- I uh, can I can on, I be please. more specific, Andy? Get him in Atletico Madrid, linking up with fullbacks <laughs> with old uh, Kieran Trippier. Come on, the Spurs link there. Yeah, that that would that would be fun. That would be fun. I I, I know he's just um, signed a, a deal as well, which we're very excited about. But I'd like to see Joe Hart have another crack because now he he was um he was someone who, d- who did pretty well, certainly on a on a human level at Torino when he arrived there. Uh, the, the people James really... Horncastle always slags his time off at, at uh, Torino. He always says he was dreadful. Oh, I, I didn't. I didn't say he was good. I mean, there were there were there were two right. halves to to, to so this. You've had answer. a bad time abroad. We think you should go again. Yeah, that's 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 pretty much it. Because abroad is just one place and just one club. <laughs> oh, I, see. I I think um, you have to bear in mind the the, the situation at, at, at Torino. They lost three of the best defenders before the start of that season. And the defence was absolutely feeble. I think he had a good start to the season and then turned into an absolute nervous wreck. It didn't help that um, the president, Urbano Cairo, was saying, well, to be honest, we expected a lot more. <laughs> I mean, what was he going to do? Get them in the Champions League? It was never going to happen. <laughs> and he did yeah. make a few mistakes a- a- along the way. But I think the way we, it, the, the manner in which Joe Hart approached that, and I know some people uh, criticize him for his perceived personality or his attitude and i always have a bit of a problem with that because perceived mm. personality is not necessarily actual personality is it yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. um I, I, th- I think the way that people responded to him when he arrived at torino people were delighted to have him there yeah, and they were. They, they, they were so excited that he came and he had a he had a little go at learning Italian. He made an effort to communicate, which obviously is hugely important when you're a goalkeeper, probably more than anywhere else on the pitch. And he's someone as well who you think if he'd have got to the right point and developed his game with his feet, and not just his game with his feet, but his um, judgment in when to come out and when not to come out of his his, his penalty area. Uh, just because you're a great player, and at one point he was a great player for Manchester City, let's not make any mistake yeah. about that. Um, that doesn't mean you can't improve, that you can't round your game. And for me, that is what playing abroad is is all about. Like, like yeah. looking at a different way of doing things as, as well as a different way of, of living your life. So 
I would have liked to see Joe Hart. It's too late now, of course, but in a more stable situation where we could have worked off those rough edges and maybe had a kind of Indian summer as a, as, mm. as a goalkeeper. I, th- I think that would have been really interesting. Yeah. I, I like that, Andy. I'll, I'll let, let's finish with, with a, one of my suggestions, Danny Welbeck to a top Turkish side. <laughs> You see, I see what you've done there, Marcus. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a textbook bit of transfer window bingo. You're like <laughs> talented, frequently injured, large mm-hmm. wages. I, yeah. oh, I think I know just the place for you. <laughs> exactly. Perfect, Andy. It's bloody perfect. And what a way to end this week's mailbag, ladies and gentlemen. Um, by my suggestion of Welbeck to the Super League, um, Andy. Thank you very much. A pleasure as always. Sorry, I was mid slurp a tea there. <laughs> and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your questions. We'll be back next week for another mailbag. And until then, keep watching the skies. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the ACAST Creative Network.